Well, after last Sunday and some of our young men leading us in worship and praise, and this morning, and Parker LaGrange being with us, a young guy, 21, just graduating from Bear Valley, most of you are thinking, Mike, you better be looking over your shoulder. And I'll tell you what, it's fun looking over your shoulder, and I hope that we see more and more young men with this type of ability and excitement for preaching the Word of God. Wouldn't bother me a bit, not only if they caught me, but went far, far past me up the road. I would hope that they'd do just that. Three desires that really ought to be our ultimate desires in studying God's Word. Turn to 2 Timothy 2.15, and it is a well-known passage. But it's well known for a number of reasons, not the least of which is the fact that it tells us what the three ultimate desires for studying God's Word ought to be. No matter how old or how young one is in the faith, these ultimate desires must be cherished. They need to be treasured by each and every one. The first desire is this, when we study God's Word, we want the Lord to be well pleased. We study to show ourselves approved to God. There is a goal or purpose in mind that the Lord be well pleased. Secondly, when we look at the ultimate desires of Bible study, it's that the Word be well used Give diligence, make every effort, a workman that needs not to be ashamed, properly dividing, handling aright the word of truth, the word well used. Not only do we want the Lord to be well pleased, we want His word to be well used in our lives. We're concerned about how we interpret and apply Scripture. But third, look at this great desire. The work well done, a workman who does not need to be ashamed. So whenever we're talking about Scripture, whenever we're studying, whenever we're meditating on the Word, maybe involved in a religious conversation, our desire is that the Lord would be well pleased, His Word well used, His work well done. Now turn to John chapter 2, from which our brother Miguel just read a few moments ago. As we look at John chapter 2, I want to do something a little bit different, and we'll call it a preachy class, a classy sermon, whatever. But I want to focus on this particular miracle of Jesus. Well known it is as his first miracle, turning water into wine. What makes a story gripping? What makes a story engaging? What pulls us in? When you talk about a good story, the setting, initially it may not seem to be all that impressive, but it does as the story unfolds, setting matters, context, as we would say. That's one factor, and we'll look at this shortly as we look at this particular miracle. Here's a second 
area for a good story. Whether we're talking about a movie, a book, a play, or a story in God's Word, not only is setting important, but so are characters. Characters that arrest our attention. Are there some characters through the years on television that you just kind of really enjoyed not liking? There are some actors that are really good at playing bad guys, aren't they? And there are some actors that are almost typecast for being good. Well, when we look at a story, look at the characters, the primary characters, the main players, if you will, and the secondary characters. Anytime you're reading stories in the Word of God, look at the setting and pay special attention to that and the context of it. Then also, pay attention to the characters, the major ones, the minor ones. Third, the plot, the storyline. What is unfolding here? What's happening? How does it go about it? How does the writer describe things? Pay attention to all these clues in the plot. And then fourth, the conclusion. Have you ever been involved in a story that really was engaging and you got to the conclusion and you go, boy, that didn't really end very good. It was kind of a downer. It was a letdown. You know what I mean? I think we've all been to movies or read books that had conclusions that were downers. Now stop and think about this. The Word of God is the ultimate story because it's true. The setting is amazing. Here on earth, heaven and hell. You think about the characters, God, and all the individuals that we read about in the Old and New Testament. Some major, some minor. But how about you and me? We think about the plot or the storyline. And we have some idea, thank God, what the conclusion is. I want to take these four matters about what makes a story good and look at each one of them with you in this particular miracle. It's a narrative. It's a story. It's a true story of Christ's first miracle. So of the four elements of a story, the beginning one was what? You remember? Setting. Setting. Look at John chapter 2 and verse 1. The setting is given very plainly. First of all, we're told when or given some information about the timing. On the third day. That means we need to go back to John chapter 1 because a common expression, a recurring phrase in John chapter 1, 19 to the end of the chapter, about verse 51, is the next day. The next day. It's found at least three times. Now we've got on the third day. Then we have, when we talk about the setting, the what, a wedding a celebration, a time of joy. While I've done an awful lot of funerals, I'll tell you it's a lot more fun to do weddings. And so there's a lot of joy and it's a time of celebration. And we are told where. We're told when, what, and where. In Cana of Galilee. 
all in the first verse. Now, the story itself goes through verse 11, and Brother Miguel read the last verse for us. But let's move on from the setting momentarily to look at the characters. If we're going to look at the primary characters, it seems to me that the primary characters here are pretty much two. Mary, we see that in John 2 in the opening verses, and certainly Jesus, all right? Everybody with me so far? But let's look at these secondary characters because they too have a role to play. A number of Christ's disciples are with the Lord, they too having been invited to the wedding. See that? You also will see servants mentioned. Servants at the wedding. Not only that, but there will be someone called the master of the feast. He's the person that's in charge. He's kind of the manager that makes everything come together. Make sure everything is right. And then you will also see the bridegroom who never says a word, but he's called later in this story by the master of the feast. Because the master says, I don't know what's happened here, but you saved the best for last. Just jotting down the characters in a story and determining who are main characters and who are secondary can be very helpful. But let's take a look here at the plot. Twice in verse 4. Twice in verse 4, it is said, rather verse 3, when the wine ran out. It's a great term. For those of you that are a little older, sometimes we say our giddy up and go has done what? That's exactly what happened to the wine. The wine got up and went. It's gone. And twice in verse 3, this problem is emphasized. And the second time, it's a serious type of thing. Because, you know, if you don't have enough food, if you don't have enough drink at the celebration, like a wedding, there's a certain amount of shame attached to it, indignity there. And, you know, people might talk. So Mary says to Jesus, see again in verse 3, they have no wine. So here's the problem. Just in case we miss it, Jordan, it's stated twice. Mary mentions this to Jesus. And Jesus begins with a question. Woman... How does that concern me? On the surface, it can sound a little bit abrupt. Especially with the use of woman. But before somebody gets irate over Jesus calling his mother woman, it's not necessarily a disrespectful term. I would let you know that the same word occurs in John 19 and verse 26 when he's hanging on the cross and he sees his mother and he says, Woman, behold your son, and son, behold your mother. 
Remember that? And certainly he was not lacking respect and love for his mother there in John 19. I don't think that he's lacking love and respect for his mother. He is simply indicating something in the next statement. He makes an assertion. Here in verse 4 he says, My hour has not yet come. The book of John especially tells us that Jesus lived his life according to a divine timetable. This is the type of lesson you can follow right along in your Bible. Because that's what we're looking at. We're looking at the setting, the characters, and the plot line. My hour has not yet come. In John 13 verse 1, knowing that his hour had fully come... That's how that passage begins, but not here. He lives according to a divine timetable, and he's saying, what are you wanting me to do? How does this relate to my overall purpose of doing the will of my God, my Father? John 6, 38, John 4, 34. Then here's what happens. You have the resolution to the problem. In verse 5, there's the resolution. You've got the problem. You have the interaction between Jesus and Mary. And in verse 5, there's the resolution to the problem. Every good story has a problem, and there better be a good solution. You won't beat the solution that is given by Mary in verse 5. Whatever he says to you, what? Do it. He's speaking, she's speaking to the servants. Whatever he says to you, do it. All right. Now look at verses 6 through 10. Because verses 6 through 10 tell us the specifics toward the solution. The resolution's there in verse 5. Whatever Jesus says to you, do it. In verses 6 through 10, what we've got here is the specific steps toward the resolution. Look at verse 6 with me. Notice that there is an asides. An asides is something where we're kind of given some information where initially we wonder, what in the world are we being told this for? But it becomes really clear as the story goes on. Now, there were six... Huge stone water pots. And the word of God would indicate the number six, the type stone water pots, the purpose used for Jewish purification, and also the volume of water that each one of these six pots would hold. Twenty to 30 gallons. Now stop for a second and do the math. If it's 20 gallons each for six pots, what are we talking about? If it's 30 gallons, it's 180. So Tim, it's 120 to 180 gallons of water in these six pots, possibly. And what the Lord does next, after this asides is he gives three commands towards the solution to the problem of no wine at the wedding. 
and shame and a lack of celebration at this great event that should be full of joy and celebration. First command, fill the jars with water. Fill them to the brim. And then what happens, Waylon, the servants do it. They fill all six to the brim. Second command, he said to them, the servants, now draw some out. Third command, take it to the master of the feast. See what's unfolding here? We are being told how Jesus is the solution to the problem and the steps that he's taken. He's in charge. Here's the guest, Steve Taylor, Jesus. But he's really the host. You keep looking at this particular miracle, this story. Look at verses 9 and 10, because in each verse, there's what I call triplets, literary-wise. There's triplets. I'll show you what I mean. Three, three. When the master of the house tasted the water, now become wine, action. He's done something, hasn't he? The master there at the feast, he tasted that it's now become wine and did not know where it came from. Now here's the asides, secondly. Though the servants who drew the water knew. They knew exactly what had happened because they had to comply with Jesus' commands, hadn't they? Notice the third point in verse 9. The master of the feast called the bridegroom. He had to respond. There's the action of tasting. He doesn't know how this wine has come about, but it is so marvelous, it is so incredible, he has to respond by making contact with the bridegroom at a wedding feast. Now verse 10, three more truths. You know what? Cody, think about this. Every word of God is God's word. And when we talk about grammar and observing how words relate, we are talking about God's word is truth. John 17, 17. Scripture can't be broken. John 10, 35. And we need to really pay attention to the fact that in truth, this is God's very word. But not just what God says by way of words is inspired, how God says it. In churches of Christ, I'm upset and hurt sometimes because we so emphasize the words that we forget to see how God chose to convey the words. And every story has characteristics we've got to be looking at. Proverbs, poetry, law. Apocalypse, and we need to see the richness and the diversity of how God says things just as much as we see and respect and love what God says. I suggest the how is every bit as inspired as the words, the what. God could have said things any way he wanted, but he chose these ways. And we need to see that and appreciate it. Now look a little more. Verse 10, 
Here's what the master of the feast says to the bridegroom. Everyone serves the good wine first. That's an axiom. It's a universal truth. It's true by experience. That's what this man is indicating. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. Sequence. Sequence. But you have kept the good wine until now. What does that statement begin with? But you have kept the good wine until now. Contrast. This is amazing. It doesn't happen. How in the world did it turn out this way? That's the idea in this passage. Now look at verse 11. And it says, this beginning of miracles or this beginning of signs did Jesus first at Cana of Galilee. That helps answer a number of questions. This beginning of signs, pointing to his identity, who he is. No indication of miracles prior to this in Scripture by Jesus. This seems to be the first one. Do you understand? And notice what the text says, that the miracle manifested his glory because he creates out of water wine. No grapes, no sunshine, no time. Six big water pots full of wine. And notice what the text says finally in verse 11. Looking at the conclusion here to the story. His disciples believed in him. Now I'm going to add something. We're talking about the word of God. Setting needs to be examined and thought about. The characters all need to be contemplated and and looked at biblically. We need to follow the storyline, the plot. We need to see the conclusion and, and what's said there. But what's the significance? Let me show you. In the presence of Jesus, there is full and lasting joy. They'd run out of wine. There wasn't going to be any celebrating much longer at a wedding. Thank God that Jesus and his presence gives us reason for everlasting joy. Look at John 15, verse 11. These things have I spoken to you that my joy might remain in you and that your joy would be full. Full. One thing to learn. Here's the second one. I got seven. We'll move through them quickly because they're all interconnected. Where did Jesus do this, this, this miracle? At a wedding. The Lord sanctioned marriage and the family and the home. After all, he created marriage, didn't he? And the home. Genesis 2, 18 and following. His word says, let marriage be held in honor among all. Hebrews 13 and verse 4. Whenever the religious leaders 
go out to see John. John is in the wilderness. John chapter 1. When we look for Jesus, where is he? He's no hermit. He's no ascetic. He's no person that's just staying out in the wilderness. He is where people are who need to have joy. Think about this. Much like the wine of that wedding celebration, there's a lot of people in this old world that have run out. They have no joy and no cause for celebration. But in the presence of Jesus, there's always joy and reason to celebrate. Third, when you look at this particular miracle, it seems to me to be a clear indication. It's public. It would be well known. A new day is dawned. The Messiah is here. The king has come. The rabbi, the teacher, the son of God. When you look at this, think about this with me. Remember how the plagues came upon Egypt back long ago in the Old Testament? And if you read Exodus chapter 7, there you will read about the initial plague, the first plague. You remember what it was? The Nile River, the water of the Nile, turned into what? But in Christ's first miracle, water turns into wine. A new day has dawned, and one greater than Moses has come, John 1, 16 and 17. And I wonder if we could somehow be present at that time and fast-forward ourselves to the cross... Remember Ephesians 5, 25 and 26. Husbands, love your wives even as Christ also did what? And did what? That he might sanctify it, having cleansed it by the washing of water through the word. I wonder if in the back of the Lord's mind as he performs this miracle, he's thinking... That the cross will come and I will provide for my bride through my blood. Next. This is wonderful to know. No matter how big the emergency or how great the need, Jesus is the answer. No matter how big the emergency or great the need, Jesus is the answer. No wine. Embarrassing, to say the least. Whatever he says to you, do it. Next. When the Lord responds, he responds exceedingly abundantly above all anybody asks or thinks. Ephesians 3.20 Six water pots full to the brim with water and as they scoop the water, it is wine. How we need to keep in mind, yes, he worked miraculously on that occasion, but doesn't God providentially bless His people today far more than we could ever ask or think? 
how remarkably short-sighted we are. And we need to think about Mary's words. Whatever he says, you do it, and there will be resolution. Just a couple of other thoughts. This passage says that in verse 11, the purpose of the miracle was to manifest His glory. This beginning, there's going to be more to come, John wants you to know. And His disciples believed in Him. You know what the last miracle recorded in the Gospel of John is? It's the resurrection. The resurrection. One who created water and made wine. It's the same one who raises from the dead. Now take just a second. Go back to John 1 with me. Go back to John 1. And start looking at those the next day type statements. Because if you really pick up at verse 19, it doesn't use the expression uh, the next day there. But in the next paragraph it does. People come to John, religious leaders, wanting to know who are you? Are you the Christ? And he says, I am not the Christ, but I am the one who has been sent to prepare the way for who? The Lord. To prepare the way for the Lord. The Lord. And then John the baptizer says in John 1, 29 and following, Behold the Lamb of God, the one upon whom the Spirit has descended, the one who is greater than I. He is the Son of God. He manifested His glory. He's the Lord. He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He's the Messiah. He's the Son of God. Pretty interesting few days progressing in the life of Jesus. Thanks for listening. I hope that you'll look at the stories of the Bible and really focus on these types of themes. We're about to stand and sing our song of encouragement. Maybe there is someone here who lacks real joy and blessing and refreshment in their lives. Maybe that's due to sin. And you are dried up and there's nothing to celebrate and no joy in your life due to sin. Whatever pleasure you've had has been all too temporary in life. But maybe it's time to look to the king, the son of God, the lamb who takes away the sins of the world. You can come to him tonight in faith and repentance and baptism and no joy of being clean and right with God and having every reason to live from day to day because Jesus loves you. For those of us who are Christians, isn't that awfully good news too?
So when we leave the building tonight, think about how God is good and think about how when Jesus is present, there ought to be joy. There's a time to be serious as Christians, but why don't we smile a little bit more? Why don't we smile when we sing? There's a place for seriousness, but certainly a place for joy. Let us stand and sing.